Welcome to episode 59, Understanding and Working Through Self-Sabotage, featuring Dr. Judy Ho, licensed clinical psychologist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. And thank you for joining us today. I'm very excited to be spending time with Dr. Judy Ho. Dr. Judy is a triple board certified and licensed clinical and forensic neuropsychologist, as well as a tenured associate professor at Pepperdine University. She is a published author, and she has a private practice in Manhattan Beach, California, where she specializes in comprehensive neuropsychological assessments and expert witness work. Uh, Dr. Judy, thank you for your time today. We're excited to hear from you on this topic of self-sabotage and how we can support our clients. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and about your work. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for having me on this program. I'm very, very excited to share the contents of my book, Stop Self-Sabotage. It is a really, for me, um, very passionate um, part of my job to be able to spread the news that's inherent in this book because of the fact that every single person I know has self-sabotage at one point or another. And, you know, it's not a big deal if it's just every once in a while. But when you start to notice that there's a pattern here, that's when we have to take a deeper look and see what is contributing to that pattern and how we can make some positive changes in our lives. And all of us can do it. And so the book is really my scientifically based six-step program to stop self-sabotage in whatever area of your life that you feel like it's plaguing you, whether it's relationships, career, trying to get rid of a bad habit or establishing healthier habits. All of those things are covered in this book. Wonderful. And it sounds like the book is really kind of based on research and is coming at it through the lens of self-help. And then for our listeners today, helping us understand how we support clients when we see them actively engaging in self-sabotage, not to mention our own benefit of how we can work through it ourselves as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, so much of it is based in the evidence uh, supported treatments of cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and dialectical behavior therapy. I thread the principles of all three approaches within this program. And I think that it will really appeal to people who are looking for a tangible solution to their problems. Great. Um, So tell me, how did you come to have this focus in this specialization, Dr. Judy? So I've always um, been a proponent of evidence-based therapies. That was my primary training modality when I was in school. And when I became a licensed professional, I continued to do work in this area. And I really just saw that of many, many, many of my patients or even friends and colleagues in general, 90% of their life is together. You know, they've got it figured out. It doesn't mean that they're perfect, but you know, they kind of know how to get around stuff, how to solve problems, but you'll find that in one small area of their life, maybe just one domain, you know, whether it's relationships or career or their health, they just can't get consistent progress. So they might make a little progress and then they'll take several steps back or they will put this goal in front of themselves and then they won't be able to achieve it. And it starts to wear on them eventually, you know, individuals, they start to feel defeated. Like, well, I'm just not going to be able to make change. So why even bother trying? And I think that it contributes to a sense of learned helplessness, even if it's just in this one small area of their life. And it does start to impact other areas as well, not to mention their emotions. And so that's why I decided to focus on this area of work because I felt like it would just touch so many people and have so many areas of applicability. It sounds like for you, it was recognizing how pervasive it was and how much it was affecting people in different domains of functioning. 
Exactly. That's exactly right. And I think that that's part of what I was seeing is that, you know, a lot of these individuals were saying, you know, I, I think I have most of this down, but why, why, why is it that I can't make change in this one area? You know, why is this one area getting me stuck? So this book is all about getting people unstuck. And for the listeners of this program, it's all about helping our clients, you know, find a way out, find a way out of the struggle that they're having. If they're starting to kind of stall a little bit in therapy, this is one potential way to get them moving again. So Dr. Judy, given that this is one of your areas of specialization, how do you conceptualize self-sabotage? Well, simply defined, self-sabotage shows up as thoughts or behaviors that undermine our best interests and conscious intentions. So for example, has have you ever thought I can never do X, so then you give up and don't try? Well, that would be one example of self-sabotage. Or do you act in a way that's counter to what's good for you? For example, maybe binge eating the entire cake when you know the importance of a healthier lifestyle. You know, those are just some of the smaller examples that can come up on a day-to-day basis. And in self-sabotage, I know I see sometimes in my clinical practice, sometimes it factors into things like self-esteem and um, ideas about the future. Tell us how you see self-sabotage weaving itself into these different methods and techniques like CBT, DBT, ACT. Well, I think one of the things that I find is really um, crucial to understanding self-sabotage and also to demystifying it and also making it feel like it's not your fault um, to decrease any stigma that might be around it is to understand that it's truly universal for all of us. It's biologically and evolutionarily rooted. And we may get into a little bit of this in um, a little bit of a later topic here. But, you know, one of the big things that I want to point out is that self-sabotage has its roots in human survival. You know, it's really all about attaining rewards and reducing the amount of threat that could come to you. And as we've grown into modern time, the time, the types of things that are going to be making us fearful are not going to be the saber tooth tiger. It's going to be, is this person going to reject me? Am I going to be rejected for this job? What if they make fun of me? Um, you know, what if I don't make it happen? What if I can't get a new job? You know, these are the types of things that really do threaten us. And psychologically, when they threaten us, it feels the same way to our body and our brain as a physical threat. And I think that that's what contributes to people holding themselves back because that sort of sense of threat becomes a lot higher than your sense of, but I also need to attain rewards to survive and live a good life. And this really kind of filters into this acronym that I developed to try to understand the roots of self-sabotage. And everybody is different. I think, you know, in this acronym, there are four different kinds of roots and people might say, oh, one of these sounds like me or several of these sound like me. But either way, I do find that individuals will see themselves in at least one of these factors. And so life uh, stands for low or shaky self-concept. That's the first letter. You know, oftentimes people will have a sense of shaky self-esteem. They just don't feel good about themselves. And that can really hold themselves back from being able to achieve what they want and to go for what they want. And I think part of the low self-concept here, you know, it really can develop over a variety of different types of things. And sometimes people only have low self-concept in just one area of their life. So for example, they have great self-concept at work, but they don't have great self-concept when it comes to health behaviors. And so that's when you see that the self-sabotage mostly manifests in their health. 
I stands for internalized beliefs. So internalized beliefs is all about the types of things that oftentimes we get messages of when we're children. And so as a child, you soak up your environment, you learn what your parents think, what other important adults are telling you. And eventually you might adopt some of these beliefs for yourself. So if you had a parent that always warned you of all of the potential difficulties that might be out there, look before you leave. Don't ever take too many chances. There's a lot of scary things out there. You know, this is something that could potentially later on as an adult hold you back. You might start to adopt these types of beliefs and then not want to step forward. F stands for fear of the unknown. Um, As human beings, we want to be able to predict things. We want to be able to know things. Change is good for us, but change is also inherently uncomfortable for a human being. And so when there's a lot of unknowns, that could also stop people. And there's a personality dimension here. Some people do a little bit better with change than other people. But if you are somebody who feels that change is especially challenging, then the sphere of the unknown can really hold you back from continuing to achieve the goals that you want. And finally, E is for excessive need for control. And, you know, we want to believe that we are the active agents of our own lives. And sometimes that need for control becomes a little bit paralyzing without seeing every single step along the way. Some people will never leave at all because they feel like, well, I need to be able to control the process. And one good example of something that you can't control at all would be maybe a romantic relationship because there's another person involved and you can't always predict what the other person is going to do. And so I think all of these different types of factors really contribute to why people self-sabotage in the first place. Okay, great. So to recap, for you, you see self-sabotage is basically these four different concepts and that when these come together, they create this phenomenon. And again, those were low self-concept, internalized beliefs, fear of the unknown and excessive need for control. So you're seeing all of these factors kind of interplay to create this phenomenon that we now call self-sabotage. And I think for the individual, it can be very different for one person. What drives their self-sabotage is just the L, just the low self-concept. For somebody else, it could be L and F. For somebody else, it could be all four. And so they don't all have to have an interplay with one another. Although I would say that everybody will say that they find themselves in at least one of these factors when they look back on their self-sabotaging. That's a great point that maybe it's coming out in one way more than in the others. Yes, absolutely. And I think it has to do with how they self-sabotage too. So for somebody who, for example, might have a low self-concept or low self-esteem in health behaviors and just only that, then you'll see that their self-sabotage really kind of only takes place in that arena. Somebody who might have more self-sabotaging behaviors in their career, you might find that, you know, a big part of the contributing mechanism is the fear of the unknown because they're too scared to, for example, apply for a job because they don't know what that job is going to look like. They don't know what the interview process is going to look like. And that fear of the unknown will just keep them in the same place that they've been in for the last 10 years, even though they're unhappy and unsatisfied about their current job situation. That's an interesting point to consider how these particular manifestations are coming out in our clients and potentially in ourselves. Tell me more about the evolutionary basis. I think that's really fascinating. And I can imagine our listeners wanting to hear more about that. What have you found in trying to understand where this is coming from? Absolutely. You know, this is one of the things that I find is really interesting about self-sabotage. People utilize this language all the time. They talk about it. Sometimes they'll say, oh, self-sabotage. I did it again. I sabotaged myself. And then they don't really understand the underlying reasons. And so then they kind of get stuck. And, you know, we all have these things that we want in our lives. You know, we 
maybe we want to lose 10 pounds. Maybe we want to achieve that promotion. We want to go on that second date with someone we're interested in or take that fantasy vacation once and for all. We set these goals up and then when we don't reach them, it really leads us to feel bad about ourselves. And yet self-sabotage is based in biology. It's based in evolution. So none of us can really escape it. It's a universal phenomenon. And the deal here is that basically for human existence, we need two simple principles that drive our survival. And those two principles are attaining rewards and avoiding threat. So let's take the first one, attaining rewards. Our brain rewards us when we're doing something that helps us to thrive physically or socially. And one way it rewards us is it drops a nice dose of that feel-good chemical dopamine. And this chemical boost makes us want to repeat the behavior in order to get that hit of positivity again. So some studies have shown that when we eat, when we play video games, receive a hug, have sex, the amount of dopamine in the brain increases. And once we get that prize, dopamine continues to flow and it often surges and it makes it even more likely that we're going to repeat that reward getting behavior in the future to enjoy those same benefits. And so this hardwiring is really helped along by these neurotransmitters, these chemicals in our brains that transport signals between our nerve cells. And our brain uses neurotransmitters to do all kinds of important things like telling your heart to beat or helping you to concentrate on a task or even getting you to fall in love. And so when dopamine is released in your brain in response to rewards, it promotes feelings of happiness and pleasure and well-being. And so these rewards can be further classified into two major types, primary and secondary rewards. So primary rewards are those that are crucial for survival, like food. And secondary rewards motivate behaviors toward goals that we have been socially conditioned to value, like a high-powered job, like a stable partner. And these feel-good effects of these secondary rewards can also be observed or felt directly. So you can see these positive social and emotional outcomes that happen to people who have these outcomes, or you can feel them yourselves when you get this particular reward, when you get that promotion, for example. And so basically our biology is, a, is programmed to strive for goals because when we achieve them, they make us feel good. And that dopamine rush is then an incentive to repeat those behaviors. But the trick is when it comes to self-sabotage, our biochemistry doesn't necessarily discriminate between the kinds of feel-good sensations we experience when we're going towards our goals and the good, quote unquote, good feeling that we get when we avoid something that seems threatening. In some ways, that also feels good in a different way because avoiding threat gives you a rush of relief. And that could also be construed as almost a positive emotion. But unfortunately, what we do now in the common, in, you know, in most people's common lives, you're not running away from saber-toothed tigers, but you're running away from opportunity, things that could feel socially or emotionally threatening. And clearly learning to avoid threat is an essential survival skill for both humans and animals. And it's good for us to avoid danger, but because now we can't truly distinguish between an emotional threat versus a actual physical threat, both of those things can perpetuate a fight or flight reaction inside of us. And when that happens, it gets kind of scary. People get really thrown off when their fight or flight starts to get ignited and they want to avoid the kind of rush of adrenaline that sometimes doesn't feel very good to us, like leaving our heart to pound or um, for us to start having ruminating thoughts. And so the issue with self-sabotage is when this 
attaining rewards and avoiding threat is out of balance. We clearly need both of them to survive, but they do best when you're balancing them. A pattern of self-sabotage uh, starts emerging when a person starts to over and over again think about avoiding threat much more than they think about attaining rewards. And that's sort of when that self-sabotage switch is triggered. That's a really interesting point that basically one takes over and quiets the necessary input from the other. Yes, exactly. I can also hear kind of the interplay already with dialectical behavior therapy and this concept of frustration tolerance, of distress tolerance, and being able to sit with those unpleasant feelings when we do feel threatened. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting about just this concept of self-sabotage is, you know, it is, it really does harken back to how much you can tolerate some distress and why you're tolerating it in the first place. And later on, um, we talked a little bit about the research that, you know, really fuels this idea of why acceptance and commitment therapy was such an important movement for our field, because anything that's worth taking, anything that's worth experiencing in life, it doesn't mean that you're always going to have an absence of negative emotion. If you think about any worthy goal, whether it's to move across the country and try something new or starting a new job, getting married, having children. I mean, there's obviously moments of elation, moments of pure joy. And then there's some moments of real anxiety and nervousness too. And any kind of goal that's worth pursuing is going to have both. So if you encounter a negative emotion and your first reaction is, oh my gosh, I need to avoid this negative reaction. I need to avoid feeling these terrible feelings, then you're never going to get anywhere because most things in life that we want to achieve is going to come with some of that. And I don't think that individuals are necessarily to blame. I mean, certainly there are individual dimensions of, you know, distress tolerance, meaning that some people can tolerate a negative emotion a little bit longer than other people just inherently. But I also think that our culture is really perpetuating this idea of hedonic happiness. And what I mean by hedonic happiness is this concept of positive emotions only in absence of negative emotion. You know, when you look at the advertising that's in all of our media, it's all about this beautiful, happy, joyous life, right? When you look at people's social media, it's a cultivated highlight reel of your life. And it starts to lead to some really unrealistic expectations in terms of how we should live our own lives. Dr. Judy, that's a really interesting point about the hedonistic focus in the culture. And I can also hear, again, the overlap with that evolutionary base, this desire to run towards something that's pleasant, but then also having to acknowledge that we're also driven to run away from something that feels unpleasant. Absolutely. And I think that that's why acceptance and commitment therapy um, was a very important movement, because it kind of goes back in time to the times of Aristotle and Plato, when these philosophers were contemplating this concept of happiness, well, what does that truly mean? And is happiness just the absence of negative emotions or is true happiness, what they called eudaimonic happiness, really just about having a life worth living, having a life well-lived. And that means pursuing things that are valuable to us, things that are of value, that your goals should come from values. And this is a huge part of how to avoid self-sabotaging as a pattern is that eventually your goals should really be about 
how does this tie into my most important values? That it's not just an empty goal. You just made it because somebody else thought that that was interesting or important. You know, um, I've had people who have come to me and said, you know, I finally finished up running that marathon. And after I finished, I just had this feeling of emptiness and I don't know why, you know, and, and I think it's because that particular goal for that person wasn't necessarily rooted in a value that was important to them personally. It was something that they just jumped on the bandwagon for when they saw their friend do it, saw their coworker do it, thought it would be kind of a fun bucket list item, but really there wasn't much behind it. And so when you have much more behind your goals, there's more of an oomph, there's more of a reason to persist in the face of distress, then you kind of get over the hump and you still continue to pursue it, even if it gets a little bit uncomfortable. Interesting. So tell me, so I can hear how our thoughts are playing into our ability to push through these uncomfortable feelings when it comes to goal attainment or making choices that are in keeping with our values. How do our thoughts come into this? So our thoughts have a really uh, big role in this because every single emotion is preceded by a thought, even if you don't recognize it. And so, you know, aside from these sort of underlying factors, the life factors that we talked about earlier that are sort of triggering self-sabotage kind of on a more global level, your immediate thoughts are coming into play all the time when you are coming up to a specific situation. And so thoughts, although they're just mental events, we have the propensity to think of them as the truth. You know, it's just sort of the way that language works. The minute you think the thought, you think it's either already happening or you overestimate the proportion um, of likelihood that it's happening. And it's just the way that language is constructed. And it's also the way that we utilize language as a species. And so immediate thoughts that come up in your head absolutely play a huge role. And yet sometimes we don't even notice the thoughts. And it's because if you've had a particular thought over and over, your brain learns to ignore it because your brain has so much incoming stimuli every day. And it can't pay attention to the 30, 40, 50 thousands of thought fragments that an average person might have in a single day. And so it starts to ignore certain messages that are repeating, but are really wreaking havoc on your emotional health. And so these are really self-defeating thoughts, for example. Well, I'm never going to be able to do it, so why bother? And then you have the same thought five, six times over the course of a day. You don't even notice that, but you just notice that you feel crummy. And so a big part of stopping self-sabotage is really about looking at these immediate thoughts that come up in response to certain situations, kind of bringing them out of the darkness and actually confronting them and then actually getting into a habit of evaluating them, deciding if they really truly reflect what's going on. And if not, try to see if you can change it. Can you change this thought? Can you change it to something that's more realistic and more balanced? But of course, there are times in which we can't change the thought. Like we know intellectually we should. We know intellectually that it doesn't make sense. And yet we just can't change it. So what do we do there? And I think it's really important to focus on, again, another emerging technique called diffusion that comes out of the ACT literature. So when you can change a thought or when you feel resistant to changing a thought, even though you know it's not good for you, even though you know it's not realistic, then how can we de-emphasize its importance? How can we de-emphasize its influence on your mood and your behaviors? And that's what diffusion is all about. So, you know, kind of just letting a thought be a thought and labeling it as such and essentially not paying attention to it, not allowing it to wreak havoc in your emotional life. 
That's a really interesting idea. How does one do this in the room with a client when there is this pervasive thought that we eventually have honed in on and can identify this is a negative thought that keeps appearing and we've slowed down the process enough? How does diffusion come in in the room and how do we implement that? Yeah, you know, it's one of my favorite techniques to explain to therapists um, as well as explain to my clients. Um, you know, I really found that it was such a cool extension of traditional CBT where it's like, okay, this thought doesn't make sense. Let's change it. Sounds easy, hard to do, right? And I think diffusion is such a fun and interesting way to, um, you know, change a negative thought process in a different way because you're not fighting it. And so in the room, you know, kind of to back up, cognitive diffusion is a concept coined by Stephen Hayes, and it refers to the practice of observing and distancing from your mind. And its associated techniques are all shown to be helpful for a variety of difficulties and to break the progression of thoughts and emotions and behavior. So it kind of breaks that CBT cycle, right? It creates space between your thoughts and feelings. And in the room, you teach your clients that thoughts don't always have to lead to feelings and then progress to behaviors. In some cases, there doesn't have to be a direct relationship to feelings or behaviors at all. So I start this by writing something on the board or on the piece of paper, and it says thoughts equals truth. And then I ask the client, you know, does this seem right to you? Like when you have a thought, do you feel like generally it's true? And most of them will say, yeah, sometimes I do, or mostly I do. And then I put like the little slash mark that makes something unequal. So like thoughts, and then that sort of uh, is not equal to truth. And I ask them how much they believe that that can be true. And usually clients are like, yeah, I have a harder time with that concept. And I talk to them about the fact that diffusion is exactly this concept that you're trying to um, disentangle this idea of the thought being the truth. And so just because you experience a, a thought, a self-sabotaging thought doesn't mean that then the self-sabotage is inevitable. So diffusion is a good way to break that chain of events before it starts down that downward spiral towards self-sabotage. And diffusion helps you to spend more time seeing thoughts for exactly what they are. They're just mental events and they are not literal truths. So one example that I really like using with my clients is labeling your thoughts. This is a helpful exercise that we can use to take some power away from negative thoughts that are getting in your, in your way. And labeling is a technique that uses language to identify what a thought truly is, which is just a mental event that you have. So the next time somebody has a negative thought, you teach them to add the phrase, I'm having the thought that in front of the negative thought. So for example, if the negative thought is I will never get another job, become I am having the thought that I will never get a ne negative, uh, another job. And notice what adding that simple phrase, I'm having the thought that does to the original thought. It's as if you've taken the thought from your mind and put it on an examination table to evaluate it and give yourself a reality check. So this technique not only changes the way in which you think about your thoughts as a separate event from you, the person, but it actually provides distance, both physical and mental, from a self-sabotage trigger. So it might reduce your inclination to take a negative thought as an exact truth by saying to yourself, I'm having the thought that dot, 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 I will never get another job. It just reminds you that, hey, this thought is a mental event and I'm going to label it as such. And so... I sometimes ask clients to take this exercise a step further by adding another short phrase. So the short phrase I have them add is, I notice that. So now this entire phrase becomes, I notice that, dot, dot, dot. I'm having the thought that, dot, dot, dot. 
I will never get another job. And this additional short phrase brings to the forefront that you are the active agent doing the noticing of your thoughts. So you, as a separate active agent, is noticing that you are having a thought. And then that thought is X. So you can see how many levels of removal there already is just by placing those two short sentences in front of your negative thought. And again, it just kind of prompts you to put your thoughts more at a distance and also see them as something separate of yourself. That's a really interesting technique. So I, I notice that dot, 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 I'm having the thought that as a way to create more space basically between the reality of the situation and the story we're telling ourselves about the situation. And for the purposes of today's talk, the application then of that story we're telling ourselves being the thing that allows us to keep self-sabotaging. Right. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the biggest things that I have found to be really helpful about this particular technique is that it slows down those ruminations. You know, sometimes our clients will tell us, man, I just keep ruminating on this problem. And I keep thinking about the same things over and over again, and I can't get a break from it. I think something really helpful about this technique is that it gets in the way of the ruminating thoughts that are so fast and there's no break in between them. So by doing this distancing technique, this labeling technique, you're already slowing down your thought processes and you're creating a natural break in that rumination, which makes it a lot harder for you to get back into that cycle. I imagine from the work that you've done, then you're seeing a lot of relationship between these anxious ruminations and then eventual self-sabotage, that it's basically getting stuck in kind of an eddy that prevents moving forward with an action. Yes. And, you know, I think it's interesting because in so many ways, anxiety or somebody who describes himself as a worry wart, you know, it's sort of a misshapen way to solve a problem. Your brain thinks that it's actually doing something active to solve a problem, but actually you're just ruminating and you're not doing anything truly productive or tangible. And so, you know, I try to explain that concept sometimes to my patients, like, you know, don't blame your mind, actually thank your mind. Your mind is just trying to protect you. And this is one of the ways in which it's trying to protect you is like, try to think about all the different things, all the harm that could befall you. Have I already thought about all the angles? But it's actually not doing anything to solve a problem that actually just creates more emotional distress. And also you're much more likely to, you know, have some distortions in your thinking, you know, things that don't actually reflect reality. And so let's take it out of sort of this ambiguity and let's actually apply a type of problem solving technique that is tangible and that will move you forward on this particular issue. You've clearly done a lot of this work with your clients and patients. Can you share with us a story that comes to mind, of course, respecting privacy and confidentiality um, that, that hits home in implementing these with clients and what that really looks like. Absolutely. So there, there's a person I'll call this client, Jack. Um, he has some really perfectionistic internalized beliefs. So when you think about sort of the acronym life, his main factor was I, it was internalized beliefs. You know, he felt like when he was young, his parents held him to extremely high standards, nothing would please them. And if he didn't please them, then he wouldn't get love from them. At least that was sort of his narrative. And so, you know, he really felt like there was no room for anything less than the best. And so Jack carries life with him. So although Jack is an adult now, he realized that he had internalized his parents' voices and he was always seeking approval. And because his quest for perfection was so ingrained and developed over decades of repetition, he found that trying to question or modify his thoughts was too difficult. Like he knew that they were really, really high expectations. But on the one hand, those high expectations were egocentric. Like it helped him to become this very successful person. So 
he knew that they were a little harsh, but he also wasn't really ready to get rid of them. But he also could recognize that those thoughts were hurting him, that emotionally it was like causing him pain and also was holding him back um, from taking other steps. And so he had trouble coming up with a challenging or opposite thought to those that were troubling him. So kind of these traditional thought modification strategies in CBT wasn't working so well for him. So for Jack, a better option was to de-emphasize the impact of these existing thoughts, which helped to create distance from his thoughts so that he could gain some perspective and move forward. So in one session that I had with Jack, he had an opportunity to put this technique distancing in action when he was passed up for a promotion. And Jack's boss told him that he was happy with his work, but that you know, the boss, he had to follow seniority in advancing members of the team. So he promised Jack that he was next in line, but unfortunately he was going to have to pass on him this time. This is a totally logical explanation. Basically, Jack's boss is saying, listen, I, you're doing an awesome job. Unfortunately, somebody has been here for 10 years and you've been here for seven. So we're going to promote that person first, and then we're going to promote you next. And Jack just couldn't really get his head around it. He began thinking that he should have been able to get that promotion out of turn anyway, if he was really that good. And that perhaps his boss was just sending him a line. And then he started to think that he was a total failure because he wasn't promoted. Like, you know, obviously I'm not the best because if I was, I would trump this whole seniority idea. And he found himself ruminating repeatedly on this thought. I'm never good enough. I'm never good enough. I'm never going to amount to the best. You know, all of these things were really happening very quickly in his mind. And he knew that these thoughts were self-sabotage triggers, but he had a hard time questioning the belief's validity. And he had an even more difficult time changing it because he's a classic professionist. He believes that he should be held to a higher standard than everybody else. And so I asked Jack to use the labeling of thought technique that we just introduced. And so he wrote down um, in his journal, I'm having the thought that dot, 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 I'm never good enough. And then I asked him to take it a step further and add the, I noticed that in front of the newly constructed thought. So now the whole thing becomes, I noticed that I'm having the thought that I'm never good enough. And then I asked Jack to literally take a step back from the page and stand to the left of his journal. So I asked him to put his journal down on the table and I asked him to physically stand up and put his physical body to the left of the journal in front of the table so that he was closest to the part of the sentence. I noticed that and physically farthest from the original thought, I'm not good enough. And then I directed him to repeat the new complete sentence out loud, because sometimes reading it aloud can help solidify your learning. So after he read it, I asked him to talk about how he felt about the original negative thought. And, and he said, you know, now it feels like it doesn't have to be 100% true. It just, he's like, it doesn't mean that it's not true. It doesn't mean that it is true, but it just affords this possibility that it might not be 100% fact. And Jack also said that like when he stood up and he walked, you know, to the left of his journal and he was physically farthest from the original thought, but that gave him some relief too. Like, oh, there's a physical space and separation between me and this original thought. And uh, again, with the thought being on the page and him standing and recognizing that he's an individual separate of this thought, like that just drove that point home again, that you are not your thoughts. Your thoughts don't have to be true, that you are a separate entity from the thoughts that you might have on a given day. And so this exercise really helped him to have more of a sense of peace um, as he was sort of thinking about this particular promotion and, and just in general, like how he was going to behave the next day at work. Because at first he thought he was just going to be so embarrassed to go to work and everybody was going to laugh at him behind his back. Oh my gosh, Jack worked so hard to get this promotion. He didn't get it, you know, and it just 
gave him a little bit of space and a little bit of grace to say, you know what, I, I don't really have to go there. And I can still go to work tomorrow and hold my head high because this thought doesn't have to be true. I really like that idea of helping him quite literally externalize that problem and recognize that it was a thought that was um, contributing to the feeling and then being able to logically evaluate the accuracy in the relationship to that thought. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, you know, for me, I think it was helpful for him to see, you know, this thought being written on the page. And that's why I'm such a stickler for journals and still having to write things on a page because people will say, no, I'm, I'm already thinking about it in my head. I, I know this exercise, I can do it in my head. And I say, you know what, it's not as effective in your head because then it still feels like a part of you. So once you take the thought out and you put it on a card, you put it on a journal, you put it on a piece of paper, then it's not a part of you anymore. You know, it's, it's something else that's physical that you can deal with, you know, because Every single problem has a physical boundary once you take it outside and it's not so ambiguous anymore. And any physical object in this world, no matter how big it is, the Grand Canyon, the earth, there's still a finite boundary to all of those things. And I think that that's an important distinction that when something's in your head, it feels kind of like it's never ending and it's really amorphous. But when you take something out of your head and put it on a page, then it's like, oh, it's just a thought and it's just sitting on this little post-it. I mean, look how small it is, you know, and you just have a different perspective on it when you can see it as tangible and outside of your body. I really like that idea. So when it comes to self-sabotage, how do we help clients basically come up with a plan for how they're going to tackle their own self-defeating thoughts and then the subsequent behaviors? Well, I've done a lot of research on this topic and I like to take my clients through a sort of a six-step process. And the six-step process starts with first understanding, you know, the biology and the evolutionary roots that we've discussed. But then it moves through to help them understand which part of life is really impacting them, that that's really, and a really important part of this learning is like, what are these underlying drivers of your particular brand of self-sabotage? And once they've had that sort of background knowledge and we've laid the groundwork, then we really launch into the, the six-step program. So the first step is to identify your particular self-sabotage triggers. So what are the things that trigger these um, automatic thoughts to come up in certain situations? And this is very much hearkening to you know traditional CPT theory where we talk about things like catastrophizing thoughts, black and white thinking, um, having a lot of thoughts that consist of shoulds, you know, these types of things, like which triggers are the ones that tend to impact you the most. And step two is how to deactivate these triggers and, and reset that thermostat. So that's some of the techniques that we just spoke of. So some of the classic CBT thought modification would be part of how to deactivate your triggers. But if that doesn't work, then the diffusion techniques would be part of how to deactivate your triggers. And then step three would be to start to look at your ABCs. So this is behavioral modification theory where you look at antecedents, behaviors, and consequences. You know, what are the antecedents that are leading to these self-sabotaging behaviors and what types of consequences are reinforcing them? So once you understand your particular ABCs, you can then learn to replace the problematic behavior with a substitute behavior that's going to put you on the right track. So that's step four. And step five is reorienting your goals towards values. Every single goal should be based in a value. So this is where ACT really comes in. We talk a lot about eudaimonic happiness um, when I work with my clients and, and why that should really be the goal. 
And this is where distress tolerance comes in as well. You know, if you have a goal that's rooted to one of your important values, then then it's going to be worth it to tolerate the distress because you want your life to stand for these values. And the final step is what I call a blueprint for change. So oftentimes I will see um, some therapists and definitely a lot of life coaches um, and motivational coaches use this concept of a um, vision board. And I think vision boards can be helpful for some people, but I also think that they can create some really unrealistic pictures of what success means. You know, I've had people tell me that they've worked with life coaches and on their vision board, they'll put a picture of a $5 million house. But then how are you going to get there? How are you going to get that $5 million house? So then every day you're staring at this vision board, you see this $5 million house and you don't see a way towards how you're going to get it. And so, you know, for me, um, one tool that I've developed is a tool called the blueprint for change. And this blueprint for change, like the vision board, is a visual tool. It's something that you put on one page that you can look at every day, study every day. But the difference is that it really breaks down the sequence of how you're going to overcome your self-sabotage. So the top of this blueprint um, starts with your values. Like what are your top five values? And then what's the goals that would then naturally flow from that? And at the bottom of the blueprint, it reviews the life strategies, you know, like which part of life is really impacting you and how. So you put those at the bottom of that blueprint for change. And in the spaces in the middle is where you would be summarizing all of the work that you've done from steps one through five. You would be looking at what triggers are there that tend to create the problem for you. What problematic behavior are you trying to change? And then what is your substitute behavior? And so I put this all together and teach my clients to put this in a visual so that it can be their kind of at a glance tool. When that find that they're about to self-sabotage, you can take a quick look at this blueprint for change, identify where the problem is and immediately apply the technique that applies to that specific problem. And so basically then they have something that they can look at when they're on the verge of self-sabotaging that summarizes all of the good work that they've done in the earlier steps. I like this idea of breaking it down into concrete steps. And can you, Dr. Judy, please review for us again, what are those six steps and then cover again the blueprint for change? Because I think this is a really interesting approach and and worthy of talking a little bit more about. Of course. So step one is identifying the self-sabotage triggers. At this point, we're really focusing on the thoughts. And there's categories of thoughts, um, self-sabotaging triggers that harken back to classic cognitive behavioral theory. So things like catastrophizing thoughts, magnification thoughts, uh, personalization thoughts, mind reading, shoulds, um, black and white thinking, all of these things would be inherent in this particular category of self-sabotage triggers that lead to automatic thoughts that come up in the moment that creates problematic behavior chains. Step two is deactivating these triggers and resetting the thermostat. So in the step, I teach individuals to examine their thoughts you know, really take like a true examination quality, kind of almost like you're the jury, you know, on a case and you're trying to look at both sides, you know, as objectively as possible. And then whatever thoughts don't actually reflect reality, let's try to change those thoughts. Let's try to modify them in such a way that would be more balanced and present a more comprehensive view. But if that fails and that doesn't work for you, then perhaps you should be moving towards diffusion, you know, distancing yourself from the thoughts so they don't impact you in a negative way. So that's step two. Step three is when you start to look at the behavior chain, antecedents, behaviors, and consequences. 
what are the things that keep driving you to maintain this behavior? Um, is the consequence relief from negative emotion? Because if that's the case, maybe that's what's holding you in this loop. So how do we break that loop? We break that loop after identifying it with replacing it with a replacement behavior that would be a healthier behavior that would get in the way of you doing your problematic behaviors and reestablishing a new ABC paradigm. So that's step four. In step five, we talk a lot about values and values is so important because it's what we want our lives to stand for. And in step five, we also talk about this really great technique called um, MCII. So that is a great technique for trying to get goals um, that are rooted in a mental contrasting paradigm. So what I mean by that is oftentimes people have a hard time envisioning their success if they don't think about the current time and what's holding them back from getting to that next point. So the way that it would look like when you work with clients would be basically troubleshooting. You know, what barriers are coming up for you? And how do we resolve these barriers? How do we come up with tangible ways to get rid of the barriers right now that's presenting in our lives at this time that would preclude us from being able to reach that next step in the goal? And so I talk a lot about this. And then the MCII, the second part of that is implementation intention. And this is where you write a bunch of if-thens for yourself. You know, so for example, if you're trying to change, um, bad, uh, bad habit of snacking on bad foods. You know, it's like, if I have the urge to reach for a chip, then I will take a quick walk around the block. You know, you make a series of these if thens called implementation intentions so that when you come up on a problematic situation, you already have the script for what to do next. And the power of being able to write these down in advance, it really does, you know, it really does create change in a much easier fashion because when you're already being tempted in the moment, it's hard to then come up with things in the moment that would stop you from enacting a problematic behavior. But if it's already written down and pre-planned, then your mind goes into an automatic role and it just does the thing that you told yourself you would do if you were to encounter this specific situation. And finally, step six is the blueprint for change. So this is where you put all of the work that you've done in the previous steps together into one complete visual. And it's something that you can consult over and over again, look at in the morning to review, to make sure that you know what's going on. And then when you come up with a problematic situation, the only thing that you have to look at is this blueprint for change. You don't have to go back and look at all your notes from the other five steps because you've already summarized them all on this one. I like how you break that down. Can you give us an example of actually doing this with a client? Is there a situation that you can think of that you can share or how that goes even in a session? Because I'm trying to imagine myself implementing it and wanting to make sure to hit these different steps to really nip self-sabotage in the bud as it's happening in the room. Absolutely. So um, when we construct the personalized blueprint for change, you know, one thing that I do when I'm trying to guide the client through this in session is we kind of take one step at a time. So we kind of go back to their notes. We kind of talk through, for example, their step one, you know, what are their self-sabotage triggers? We write this down on this particular chart. And then we go to the next thing, you know, we go to step two, you know, what are some of the behaviors, for example, um, that you need to do to try to break this chain? And so we go through, you know, one example at a time, we kind of go through, um, you know, it's, it's, it obviously will end up being a very extensive example if I kind of talk about it with one particular client. But 
um, basically I take them through all of the six steps one at a time. And we review all of the work that we've done in this program in the last 10, 15, 20 sessions, however long it took us to get to this point. But I always have my clients start with their values first. When they are completing this blueprint, I want to make sure that the relationship between the most important values to them and their goals are extremely intact, that their goal naturally flows from their most important values. And for some of these clients, it's hard for them to understand what values are. They're like, wow, I don't really think this way. I only think in the way of goals, which is a common thing to say. And I actually take them through an exercise called the values card store. And this is a really fun exercise. I, you know, there's thousands of values in the world, but I start with just like 33 of the most common values. And we cut them out onto little cards and I have them arrange it in the order of importance. And then we look at their top five values. And then I ask them to think about what we call a peak moment. Peak moment is a type of uh, technique that really um, harkens back to the motivational triangle that a lot of us have looked at, you know, sort of with the safety and belonging on the bottom and self-actualization on top. It's a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it, it talks about how when we are in a peak moment of our lives that, you know, everything's flowing and like self-actualization can happen because our most uh, important values are being touched on. So I ask clients to reflect back on a peak moment for themselves. And then I ask them, now look at the top five values on your list today and then think about this peak moment and how many of these top values were part of your peak moment? Like how many of these top values were touched on or expressed in some way through this peak memory that you're having? And for most of my clients, they'll say all of them, half of them. I mean, it's, it's clearly something that is consistent across time. And I use that to fuel their um, energy and motivation towards finishing this last step of the program, which is the blueprint for change. It's like, you know what, now that you have set yourself up and know that this is something that's important for you to achieve, like we got to take it all away. We need to make this into a visual so that you can utilize it more quickly because you might think, oh, I have all these notes in my head, but in the moment you really need to have something that's already viscerally there and already written out so that you can consult it, especially when you're most vulnerable to self. I like the idea of being able to bring it back with clients to a time when they had that peak moment so that they feel motivated. Can you give some examples of peak moments that you've heard before? Yeah. Peak moments that I've heard before are, you know, birth of a child, um, graduating from school, um, you know, having um, a really great family reunion after not being able to um, connect with many extended members of the family for many years. Um, the moment of getting married, you know, a lot of different people will have these very visceral memories that they can describe. And, and, and really what was so um, important about the memory wasn't just that, oh, I checked off a major life goal. You know, it was about like the other things that they reflected on. So for example, I had a client who said that getting married was a peak moment of theirs, which sounds like, okay, yeah, that could be a common peak moment. But when she reflected more on why it was a peak moment for her, it was really because, you know, that was the last time when you know, her parents and grandparents were together because very shortly after the wedding, um, one of her grandparents died. And so she's thinking about this sort of like completeness of her family and that being a big part of this wedding. She was also thinking about, you know, how there's been no other time in her life where all of the most important people in her life were all in one room and they were all there for her. And um, it was a very um, satisfying moment for her. And, and again, just reflecting that that could be a once in a lifetime experience. And so 
for her, one of her top values was community and another top value was family. So you can see how in this particular reflection of this peak moment, it touched on two of her most important values already. What I can hear that's interesting too would be when you encounter a client who's basically making movement towards something perhaps socially influenced, or maybe there's family pressure, whatever it is. And then when you actually do this with them, you walk through all of this, they basically realize it's not even consistent with their values. I can imagine how releasing that must be for some clients. Absolutely. And it's like, wow, I've been uh, trying to achieve this goal and I've been fighting it and I've been, you know, maybe there's a, a part of myself, there's some unconscious part of myself that doesn't actually want to reach the goal. And that's why I keep sabotaging myself. And now it makes sense because this value and this goal is not aligned. You know, this goal is not tied to anything that's important to me. It might be tied to somebody else's values, but it's certainly not mine. And it also gives them more agency to explain that to people who have been putting that pressure on. Like this might be important to you, but it's not important to me. And I respect that this is important to you for various reasons, but here's why this is not crucial in my life. And it can start a really good conversation, even if it is difficult at times and, and maybe wrought with tension, you know, people can kind of understand that concept at least to begin the discussion. Like, okay, this is something that's important to me, but not to you. Okay. So then, then where do we go now that we know that? That idea of implementation intentions of, if it's not important to you, then what steps could you take? I, I see how you could apply this to lots of different parts of therapy and even our own self-exploration just as humans in general, um, an extension of mental contrasting and implementation intentions, and then how that would lead you into, okay, basically what's your blueprint? What are you going to do about it? Um, and how do we implement that? Absolutely. I mean, it's all about action after the reflection. So, you know, you have the reflective period. It's important to do that. It's important to get understanding, but once you get understanding, what's the next step, you know, that's where people get stuck. Sometimes some people will say, well, yeah, the, the, the insight has been there for a long time, but I just haven't had the action. And that's why that blueprint at the end is so important because we need to finish this up with action. Give us a little bit more detail about the blueprint for change. I like the language. I think it's reachable. And I can imagine working with a client and saying that and have them connect to that concept of basically, here's how we take this discussion and we move it into something that carries action, that carries weight. Now we have movement. So I can certainly make um, the, the blueprint graphic available to your listeners as well. Um, and I can try to describe it the best that I can without a visual in front of us at the moment. Um, but the blueprint for change um, on the very bottom of the page, if you can imagine sort of like the bottom row of the page, it has the life factors there. So it has the L-I-F-E, low self-concept, internalized beliefs, fear of the unknown and excessive need for control. And this is where the client can make little notes, check marks, um, little stars next to like whatever part of life that tends to play them the most, just so that it's always sort of on the forefront of their minds. Like this is where I tend to get tripped up. From life, um, I have an arrow going up to um, a series of different types of self-sabotage triggers, and they are divided into events, thoughts, and feelings. So events can be internal or external. Internal events are, for example, memories or a thought in itself. Um, and then self-sabotaging triggers that are in a thought form can be in several categories, like overgeneralizing thoughts, should thoughts, black and white thinking, mind reading, discounting the positive and personalization. And self-sabotaging triggers can also take the form of feelings. So that can be emotional uh, words that you can describe to a way that you're feeling, or they can be physiological reactions. You know, if every time you approach a certain goal, your heart beats so fast, you can't stand it, you're going to start to avoid it, right? So these are the types of things that I have the clients circle and note on the 
um, blueprint for change on the left side. And from there, you go into a uh, graphic of how these triggers then lead to old behaviors that you're trying to change and old consequences. So I have them actually write down these old behaviors and old consequences, you know, like, so what are some of these old behaviors that stop you in your tracks and you end up, you know, not going on dates at all because you have all these self-defeating thoughts about how nobody's going to be interested in you. And the old consequences of that is, you know, at least temporary relief, you know, you feel good that you don't have to be rejected. So because you didn't do any asking, you didn't put yourself out there. But unfortunately, as you can see, that just reinforces that loop over and over again. So right above the old behaviors and old consequences, I then have them come up with new behaviors and new consequences. And the new behaviors is where you put the implementation intentions in. So if then statement, um, if my heart starts to beat really fast before I'm going to ask someone out on a date, then I will take 10 deep breaths and I will return to this activity five minutes later. You know, you get as specific as possible and you go down a whole list of different scenarios that could come up and think about ways that you can sort of get over the hump. And these new behaviors then will lead to new consequences. So what are the new consequences? Like, what are you hoping to achieve as a result of changing your behaviors? And how are they going to be different from your old consequences? So instead of relief from a negative emotion, the new consequences might be an actual positive emotion. Yay, I did it. I believe in myself. And that, of course, then will feed on itself and give you more confidence the second time around. From the new ABCs, right on top of that will be the goals. And the goals are listed in the box and they have lines going to all of the five important values for this person. So you write down the five most important values that you derive after this card sort activity. And then just make sure that the goal that you write is a goal that actually feeds into each and every one of your five values. And if the goal is not written in such a way that feeds into your five values, then you should not be writing the goal in the way that it is. You should think about changing your goal because your values are important. Your values are persistent. And so the goals though can be modified. And so you need to write your goal in such a way that will be connected to your values so that you can have that underlying persistent motivation, especially when things get hard and you want to quit and your frustration tolerance is low and your emotional distress is high. You know, how do you push forward? How do you develop emotion regulation and distress tolerance? There has to be a good reason for it. And by having your goals tied and tethered to each of your five values, that's how you're going to do it. Thank you for breaking that down. And I would love to have that on uh, the website to just have the graphics so that people can see that and visualize it. As you've broken it down a couple of times, I can see it more clearly each time. And I, I really like the values uh, connection and bringing it back to that and knowing the research and has supported that people who make decisions with knowledge of their values are much more likely to find them to be satisfying. Um, I, I can see how all these pieces relate back to the the original concepts you were talking about in dialectical behavior therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy act, and how these things kind of fit together to create a, a way of viewing self-sabotage that can allow us as clinicians to be more supportive of clients in helping them actually move past it and into different uh, behavior choices. Yeah. I mean, I think that, thank you so much. I mean, I really feel like sometimes clients are just grasping for something tangible. And I think that that's really the, the goal is that we're giving them these tangible tools so that they can change their own lives and become their own therapist, right? I mean, that's the eventual goal of evidence-based therapy approaches is that you're teaching them these skills so that they can then implement it on their own when they feel more confident about it. Thank you, Dr. Judy. This has been so helpful to have you break down 
not only the evolutionary and biological basis for self-sabotage, but then what we can do from a clinical perspective, what interventions we can use to help our clients when they hit that wall, we can help move them forward. Um, I think that's really reachable. Thank you so much. And again, thank you for having me on this program and for getting to talk about these strategies. So tell me, Dr. Judy, for our listeners that want to know more about what you're suggesting and know more about you, where can they learn about this? So they can find me um, at my website, and there's more information about this program there at drjudyho.com. And they can also find me on social, um, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at drjudyho. The D-R is abbreviated. So D-R-J-U-D-Y-H-O. Wonderful. And the title of your book as well. The title of the book is Stop Self-Sabotage. It's uh, published by HarperCollins and uh, the published date is 2019. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Judy. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. I really appreciate you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.